Are you looking to scale up your healthcare solution in partnership with leading healthcare companies? Companies such as Blue Shield of California, Cigna Healthcare, Evernorth Health Services, Optum Labs, and United Health Group, which together have over 200 million members. Applications are open for the 2022 UCSF Roseman ADAPT program. ADAPT awardees will receive $100,000 cash support and connections to payers for startups developing breakthrough technologies to improve healthcare efficiency. To apply, visit rosamaninstitute.org. That doesn't always mean that you have to have perfect technology, but it does mean that you usually have to have a strong team with a unique perspective that addresses a true pain point in our health system. How does that translate into a business? What need are you solving? Who is your customer? Why will they pay for this? And if you can articulate that full picture for me, then I can see how I can partner with you and help you build that that company into something that is truly transformational within our business. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Entrepreneurs I talk to are always wondering, how do you catch an investor's eye? To answer that, we're talking to Nicole Walker, a partner at venture capital firm, Arboretum Ventures. Nicole will walk us through her time working abroad in Hong Kong, her tips for entrepreneurs seeking funding, and her experiences as an African-American woman in a male-dominated field. In this episode, we also discuss her unique background as a mechanical engineering student who eventually settled into the investment field. Here's our conversation. Well, thanks for joining me this afternoon here in San Francisco. It's really warm, Nicole. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. But it can be warmer than Michigan at this time of the year. So looking forward to our conversation. You have such an amazing, broad experience. (laughs) And I'd love to for our listeners to get to know you. And I thought it'd be great to start from your background and how, you, you know, Think about from the beginning what inspired you to to do a lot of the different things mm-hmm. throughout your life that leads you to where you are today. Uh, where to start? Where to start? Um, so I was born and raised uh, in the Chicagoland area uh, and grew up always kind of knowing that I wanted to be in healthcare in some way way, shape, or form. And it really started for me, um, I can remember being four years old and a relative of mine came by the house and they were walking funny. And I asked my dad, it was his grandfather, I asked my dad, uh, you know, why is Pop-Pop walking differently? And, and it was because he had, had his toe amputated. And my dad told me that he had sugar. And at four, you know, no one really explained to me that sugar was diabetes. I just thought, wow, that's what happens when you eat too many sweets. And it went on and his condition got worse. And so eventually they amputated his foot and a part of his leg and it went on and he passed away. But that really stuck with me as a a small child that, you know, 
there has to be a way. I have to do something so that, you know, you don't have to end up that way from eating too many sweets. And I say to to this day, I'm still not the biggest sweets person. And I think (laughs) there's a little bit of that that (laughs) creeps into that. But I kind of thought that I would eventually move on and be a, a doctor. And that's why I wanted to do really well in school and, and got to undergrad and found out that I was actually more interested in engineering, but that I could combine still healthcare and engineering. And that set me down the pathway. I still knew that I wanted to be involved in healthcare and, and help doctors in some way and help people at the end of the day. But it just didn't quite know how I was going to use the engineering degree to make that all happen. Uh, and ended up one day driving down Highway 101 and seeing a company called Advanced Cardiovascular Systems and thought they have to do something that combines healthcare and engineering. I'll go and ask them if, if they hire summer students and, and co-op students. This is when you were in Stanford. This is when I was at Stanford, yes. Yeah. So so I should back up. You're right. <laughs> Because I'm thinking like, you're just walking, driving randomly. <laughs> no, so I, I, I eventually left the Chicagoland area and moved to the Bay Area. I got my undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering at Stanford. But while I was there, um, my junior year, yes, my junior no, my sophomore year, was driving down the highway and saw advanced cardiovascular systems and um, decided to show up Monday and ask them, what their summer hire program looked like. <laughs> and they they immediately told me they did not have a summer hire program. And so I showed up for the next three days and kept asking the question, you want to hire me? I'm a Stanford engineer. <laughs> I'm really smart. I'll do anything. And by the fourth day, they were tired of me showing up in their lobby and said, and, and, and literally one of the head engineers came down to the lobby and said, can you run this type of experiment? And I, I had no clue what he was talking about. And immediately said, yes, I can do that. <laughs> I've done that before. <laughs> and off we went. <laughs> and I stayed. I did. I, I worked at Advanced Cardiovascular Systems for the summer. I worked as a co-op my junior year. Uh, so that must have been my senior year. I, I worked as, in the co-op for my senior year. And then um, at, after graduation, literally graduated on Sunday and Monday, I was in the lab at my desk, my official desk now as a employee. And that was a great place in my mind to start the start my career because it was using the engineering degree to build medical devices, you know, to first in the manufacturing floor and then um, moving over into the reliability and quality lab where I got to tear them apart, you know, destruct and test the reliability of, of our devices as well as competitive devices. And it really taught me a ton about what made good devices or not. (laughs) And that led to a role designing medical devices, designing coronary stents. And I stayed in the engineering team after that for six years before I decided, you know, uh, and I think at that point it was, it was 1997. We had launched, I think three or four brand new programs around the globe (laughs) One of, or two of them I was the project leader for. And so I just, I was almost burnt out at that point. I thought I wanted to stop out and get my graduate degree at that point <laughs> just to take a little time off. And that's how I ended up back in the Chicagoland area, Kellogg, getting my dual degree and master's 
in operational engineering and, and a master's in uh, business um, and thought, okay, this is great. Everybody goes into consulting and investment banking. I did a summer on Wall Street working for Morgan Stanley and the, the, uh, uh, the internet group, believe it or not, because I couldn't work in healthcare. I was technically still an employee of my prior company. And so I worked in the Mary Meeker Internet Group and worked on internet radio <laughs> as a summer project uh, in equity research. And I, I quickly realized I hate investment banking. <laughs> I want to totally relate. <laughs> I, I was like, I'm not, I'm not convinced about this tech thing. I want to go back into healthcare and, and build more healthcare devices. And so that's what ended up happening after graduating there. One of my former uh, bosses approached me about moving to Asia and heading up the marketing activities for Asia Pacific and, and um, worked on really building that business with the rest of the team there and, and setting up our, what I call our marketing operations, working with uh, vendor and uh, distributor development, setting up the customer service, backbone, pricing models. It was a great place to learn the background of our industry and uh, and I got to see all of Asia <laughs> and live in Hong Kong. So after racking up a million miles or so, at least a million miles, I decided it was time to come back home. I, I'd done it for three years and, and um, had a ton of fun, but was ready to do something else again. And at that point, you know, it's, it's 10 years since graduating from school and um all of my peers had started, or a number of them had started their own CEO or started their own companies. They were CEOs of different venture-backed companies. And so I thought, I'll just move back to the States and do that. <laughs> That's apparently what every good medical engineer does. And I, I received a piece of advice from one of my mentors uh, who said, you could de- probably definitely, you know, start a, a company, but you should think about really learning what venture capital is like. So why don't you consider doing an internship or an in and out program with one of them and get to know the business? Uh, And that's what I did. And I joined a firm in California right on Sand Hill Road called Onset Ventures (laughs) and learned how to look at devices and and, uh, life science tools and diagnostics, as well as a little bit of health tech. It was very early days of that. It was mostly pure healthcare IT at that point. Um, And that's that's what started me on the road to venture. <laughs> I just thought it was interesting. I mean, I grew up in Asia and, in, and I, I know you're living in Hong Kong and I'm just trying to um, learn a little bit about your experience. I'm sure when you're in Hong Kong, there's not that many people who look like you when you're in Hong Kong. And that must be quite an, not an experience. <laughs> and I'm sure there's a good experience and there must be a bad experience as well. You know, it, it, well, you are correct. There were not many uh, African-American women in Hong Kong at all. And immediately when people saw me out in the streets, especially at the mall, they just assumed that I, I worked for the airlines. They're like, which airline are you with? And for the, Or embassy. <laughs> could have been, but it was immediately airline, always airlines. And initially I was confused why I got the question. Oh, you just don't see anyone else who looks like me here. And so you assume I must be a flight attendant. Uh, traveling in and out of the country. But it was, um, you know, when the when the position was first offered to me, I turned it down 
three times or turned it down twice, accepted it on the third time. And, and, and one of the reasons I turned it down initially was because of that one I had never seen in, in our company where an expat role had been managed well, where the expat actually came back to the U.S. It stayed on track. Usually um, they send the, what we would have called higher performers into those expat roles to, to uh, try and bridge the gap between a U.S. company moving into a new territory. And then the second reason for me was there just aren't any African-Americans in Hong Kong that I knew of. <laughs> it's changing, though. It's changing. And well, and after I lived there for a while, I realized that there really was a strong expat community because it's such a diverse area within Asia you have lawyers, investment bankers, <laughs> but you also had a number of, indivi- of, of individuals who worked at the embassies and universities, right, uh, and, and, and taught English in particular. So I, I was able to build a community while I was there of, of other African-Americans, and so that was great. But uh, I, I always found it fascinating because here in the U.S., I am usually one of the shorter people, <laughs> <laughs> anywhere I go. And I could walk down the street and be one of the taller people <laughs> in some neighborhoods. And so I was like, this is really awesome. <laughs> I feel like I'm I'm not vertically challenged right now. <laughs> I was at conference last week and I said, I know why I think it's good, good to be tall because you can just look down who is out there <laughs> rather than the other. No one, ever you. Yeah, no one ever blocks your view. It's very easy. You can see where you're going. <laughs> So I always found that to be hilarious. And, and you know, overall, I found that people were more curious than anything else. Right? Mm-hmm. How did you get here? So right. you're not with the airline. What do you do? And how how did you end up in Hong Kong? And so it was always a great conversation starter, if nothing else. And then there yeah. the occasional um, uh, you know, either snarky comments because I was American. Uh, or a woman in a setting more so than being, I would say, an, uh, an African-American woman. Yeah, well, that's good. I, I think it's, uh, I think when people come in from like from the dialogue, it's always a good, you know, it's always fun because you learn from the why and yes. I think that you have the opportunity to, to share about your experience. I think it's always fun. I mean, I have a lot of experience when I was living in Europe. Also, people look at me like, <laughs> wrong to be here. <laughs> so I can totally relate a little bit. But I, I thought it was interesting that you, so you, you dip your toes in the on set ventures, but then you also experience being in a corporate ventures. Yes. Or you move on to different back, you know, different ventures again. <laughs> yeah. And and for me, you know, the onset model at that point was their expectation was you you came into onset, you worked with them for two to three years, and then the goal would be that they had trained you to the point that you were either ready to start your own company or um, you could move into another venture firm. But it really was a two, it, it was a two year and out program. And so after the third year, I thought, okay, I have found the company I want to go to. I don't want to go back into a large company. And um it was a, a diabetes testing company, and I started conversations with them, and then Abbott bought them. <laughs> so I had a decision to make. I could 
moved now into this division of Abbott, into this company that I thought was really cool and see how it worked out for them being a division. And, and the company became a part of Abbott Diabetes Care, uh, or I could look for something else. And so I, I chose to um, take the role with Abbott and their strategic marketing group for their diabetes group. Uh, but I ended up, the role ended up being completely OUS facing. So I was back on a plane again and generating another million miles. I was, I was like, you worked yourself back into the same problem. <laughs> and, and so I went to them and said, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't be on a plane constantly. And at the same time, they were just thinking about starting their corporate venture units. And uh, after, you know, having lots of discussions about what I wanted to do, I said, you know, I think I want to do that. And so that's how I ended up going into corporate venture. I, I they, The spec for who they wanted to be one of the founding members of the group was someone who had deep knowledge of, of MedTech, uh, or sorry, it, it, originally MedTech, uh, someone who had deep knowledge of venture capital, <laughs> and someone who understood the inner workings of the Abbott divisions. And so I said, great, I'm going to try and get into the founding group of the MedTech group. And lo and behold, they asked me to help them found their biotech group because they're like, we have someone for the, the med tech side. We really need someone on the biotech side and we'll partner you with a scientist. It'll be great. And so I invested in biotech for four and a half years. It was crazy because I, I had always said I would never move internationally. I've moved internationally. I always said I would, I would, Never travel again after I came back to the States as a part of my job. Immediately did that. And then <laughs> I was like, well, I know I'll never um, go into a biotech company or do anything on the biotech side because that's just so different from what I've ever done. And off I went and invested in biotech for four and a half years. So my rule now is to never say never. <laughs> I'm going to pay attention when you say never. And I know that's what you're going to do. Exactly. Because I'm, I'm pretty convinced now that when I say never, it really means <laughs> that I'm speaking it into the universe and something's about to happen. So be careful what you say then. Be careful what you say. And it was a great experience. You know, what better way to learn you know, really how a corporate looks at acquiring assets, number one, through their venture investing, because we worked really close with, with um, the, the, the therapeutic leads that we were um, making these investments on behalf of. And then two, what better way to learn about all of these different therapeutic areas that are very similar on the med tech side as well in terms of topic and need, um, but you you... I was able to take deep dives and work with some of the smartest people in the business in terms of what are really the biological challenges. How do you apply technology and innovation to it? And what should we be looking for <laughs> in these companies? So, uh, yeah, it, it is a great opportunity. I tell people all the time, if you have an, an opportunity to move into corporate venture investing, at least for a little while, you get a ton out of it, I think. Yeah. So, and after that, you went to Barrett Capital and yeah. then later on to, to where you are now. Yeah. Um, Arboretum Ventures. Right. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about Arboretum Ventures? Sure. So, Arboretum is based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. We have been investing for the past 20 years as a completely healthcare dedicated venture capital fund. And, and our sweet spot 
for investing tends to be the Series A as an entry point. And uh, we will consider anything that is not a, a new molecular entity opportunity. So devices, diagnostics, life science tools, tech-enabled services. And in, in my particular area of interest and focus is something that we call the pharma adjacency. So it's anything that essentially would wrap around a pharmaceutical or biopharma asset uh, that helps to either improve the ability to uh, uh, engineer or I shouldn't say engineer or improve the ability to develop and uh, discover new drugs and then to make them more efficient in terms of distribution or less costly at the end of the day once you start to commercialize them. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. One of the things people always say about telling the entrepreneur is that, you know, find the right investor for you, mm-hmm. providing that people are in your space already. I think sometimes um, I'm just trying to tee it up is that besides the team, besides the technology, mm-hmm. it has to make financial sense for the investor. Correct. Can you share with us, like, what is that so that all the entrepreneurs who listen understand from your point of view why it has to make sense? I mean, what does that mean when you said financially makes sense for the Sure, sure. At the end of the day, what I like to remind our entrepreneurs is that one thing I like to remind them of is, is that we are very much like them, right? We have investors who are gracious enough to uh, invest in us and share their capital with us. And then we use that capital to invest in, in really talented teams. And our belief, and one of the reasons that I, I joined Arboretum, is that especially in healthcare, <laughs> If you, if you are mission-driven insofar as finding technology that can not only improve the overall outcomes that can be achieved within healthcare, but also take the cost out of our system because and increase the overall access to that type of care, then everyone wins at the end of the day. And those become valuable assets. If you can really use and build technology and create fantastic companies, those will be valuable assets. But (laughs) you have to have a laser-like focus on what is the value that you are trying to achieve. And when when, when we talk about value, when I talk about value, at the end of the day, I have to return that capital (laughs) back to my investor. And so I have to see a pathway forward to either this company growing into a standalone company that can be IPO'd or a fantastic asset that someone like one of my former companies (laughs) would want to acquire at the end of the day. And so that doesn't always mean that you have to have perfect technology, but it does mean that you usually have to have a strong team 
with a um, clear, with a unique perspective that addresses a true pain point in our health system that shows a pathway for someone else to create value if they had it on their own. I think it's the best way to put it. What I see, especially in some of the either earlier entrepreneurs or first-time entrepreneurs, is that they get really excited about the, the technology and, and they talk about the technology for the first 20 slides out of 30 slides. And I have to stop them and say, but you still haven't told me why this is a business. I think this is a really great piece of scientific innovation. But how does that translate into a business? What need are you solving? Who is your customer? Why will they pay for this? Uh, and if you can articulate that full picture for me, then I can see how I can partner with you and help you build that, that company into something that is truly transformational within our business. Mm-hmm. And one more thing, as you don't mind sharing, is a, you know, I think oftentimes investor, when they see a company that presented, the brain is not thinking about like, what is the potential? Yes. Is this something that I can invest with the fund size that I currently have? Yes. And what are the back of the envelope calculation that went through hmm. your head? <laughs> if you can share that with folks. Yeah, no, it, it, it's not complicated math, but people, I think sometimes people think it is and it, it's not. At the end of the day, I am thinking, okay, let's let's just pick widget A. <laughs> okay. I know that widget A to be a really successful company um, would have to demonstrate that it has clinical benefit and that, you know, a handful of initial customers um, will pay for it. I know if it can reach that point, then it will probably be worth $500 million. Okay. If I know it's going to exit for $500 million, then I really don't want to see us put more than $100 million into it because I'm always thinking about what's the minimum cash on cash return that I could see for a potential um, company. And if it's really early, then I'm thinking about how much do we need to put in to get a 10x, 20x. Because I know that it will require more money going into the company for us to achieve that same exit point. So the later the opportunity, you know, the expectation may not be to have as large a cash on cash return because since it's later, the the company, the technology is not as risky. But the earlier it is, (laughs) the higher that multiple needs to be. And so that's how you start to look at, hmm, can you really build something successfully if it's going to need more than $100 million at the end of the day to take it to that exit point? And given the size of our fund, and we would only write, you know, somewhere between 20 and 25 million into the total deal itself. Well, it becomes very challenging for us to have a portfolio mix of companies where we can invest in enough companies out of a given fund to make it interesting and to give us a better shot on goal for really great fund returns. So all of that goes into <laughs> when we're looking at deals. It's You're right. It's not just that single opportunity that we are um, evaluating. It, it can also be a little part of this is great, but it's too early for 
where where we tend to have an expertise of investing or it's too early given the makeup of the fund and how many deals we've done so far. Uh, so there's there there's a lot of what I call the putting the puzzle pieces together when you are looking at new investments and also, you know, creating a portfolio for a given venture fund. Right. So, you know, I think the best way for entrepreneurs to find out about where your mix are right now is by talking to you. But sometimes they reach out, you know, some people just like, well, let me do my research first, looking Mm -hmm. at your website, understanding your portfolio. Yes. That also helps. Absolutely. I, I, I think it's, it's great when entrepreneurs do that type of homework because they have a better sense of who you are and, and um, you know, taking the time to speak to uh, entrepreneurs who have worked with us in the past, not only the website, but really understanding uh, when you are having conversations with, with venture capitalists, who they are, what, what they tend to invest in and what excites them about investing because just because you talked about a firm or a particular fund, all the partners are different or slightly different. We come together because we have a lot of commonalities and we have a lot of synergies. But, um, you know, on our team, we have people who am former former engineer. We have someone who used to head up uh, one of the larger health systems here in, in uh, Michigan. We have former... Uh, investors, people with finance backgrounds. I mean, we're very diverse in terms of our profile and makeup. And so our investments tend to bias themselves based on those prior learnings and preferences. And that makes a difference. And you find all of that out, the more conversations you have with different venture capitalists and and, um, and the folks who've worked with them in the past. And I think um, when you speak to your peers, it's kind of, uh, you can get pretty you know, you can be comfortable, right? Because you don't have to impress the other party as much. <laughs> Compared to trying to talk the honest feedback. <laughs> yeah. The unvarnished truth is what they call it. Yep. So you mentioned earlier about somebody like, you know, uh, being, uh, joining a corporate ventures. How is it different being in a corporate ventures compared to standalone venture capital? Yeah. And every, every corporate group is, is a little bit their own animal, but I would say for me, the the difference in, in many times with corporate investing is that you are investing on behalf of the strategic mission of the corporation, right? So I didn't have the freedom to say that I want to look at everything in healthcare. I was specific about, okay, we are looking at things that will enhance the overall Humira brand. We are looking at things that will enhance um, the portfolio at large, where are the strategic areas that we want to move into. And so that that was a very specific and narrow look that, that we were making. And if we wanted to invest outside of that, even if we thought it was complementary, there had to be pretty specific and strong rationale to do that. And we were investing from the balance sheet as opposed to out of a, um, a dedicated fund. So, uh, you know, when you're talking about using the balance sheet cash, especially in a publicly traded company, you you have to be very specific as to why moving those dollars into, the, into that investment make a lot of sense. Yeah. And so now the question is this current financial state 
Mm-hmm. Everybody's just like, oh my God, how am I going to get fun day? My, my hair's on fire. Um, yeah. What, what do you recommend and where, where, what you think? You know, I have been telling many entrepreneurs who ask this question, uh, just take a breath. And we have seen this cycling happen before in our industry. We saw it in 2000. We saw it in 2008. <laughs> this has been the longest period where we've just seen these this phenomenal time to not only invest in new companies, but also raise new funds. And, and so it's been a real boom. And, and uh, there's an entire generation that hadn't seen that kind of correction <laughs> in a while. And so now we have another one. And I think that you you go back to the fundamentals of it, of if you are building really great businesses that are solving critical problems within healthcare, you will be able to raise money. Will it take you a little bit longer? Will you have to have a very crisp and, and tight story? Absolutely. But there is no denying that healthcare needs innovation, (laughs) requires innovation. We cannot continue to spend, especially in the U.S., on healthcare and manage healthcare and deliver care in the same way that we have done in the past. It's just an unsustainable financial entity from that perspective. So so innovation cannot be stopped. (laughs) It is just a matter of, I think, when you have such fantastic times for everyone around the table, that you probably end up with with um, duplications in areas like, do we need 27 companies all working towards the same problem? Probably not. <laughs> and so that's where it goes back to the fundamental of what is the clear pain point that you are addressing within healthcare and how are you and your solution uniquely positioned to answer that? That will get funded. Yeah. I think it's almost that in the, tough time like this when you got funded is like you are truly special that you're special yes <laughs> well and it also it, it uh, one of the points that we speak to often with our companies and it comes up in, in particular in the diligence process is capital efficiency you know even in good times especially younger companies you will go through cycles where things don't work. It takes you longer to go through the product iteration. It takes you longer to land your first customer. And so you thought you could do all of these or complete all of these milestones on $20 million. And suddenly you realize, oh, I I kind of need an extra five. (laughs) Well, (laughs) let's talk about, do you need the extra five or or is there a, a more capital efficient plan and strategy that we can come to agreement from the or come to agreement with in the very beginning. And we spend a lot of time in our diligence process working through what we think the best strategy is and what the, the operating plan really needs to be to try and reinforce that capital efficiency. And if you have that mentality and you bring that into this type of financial market or, or the environment that we're sitting in right now, then I think it's easier to weather the storm as well. Yeah. So I know... I'm short on time, but I have so many more questions I want to ask. I feel like I should bring you back for a session two. Um, but I do want to ask more on a personal note. And you know, this week, this Sunday is a Juneteenth day. Yes. And um, I think, you know, there's, I'm so glad 
there's a lot more awareness about the Juneteenth uh, being on the federal holiday. And I want to ask you about your experience in the healthcare space, being an adventure space, mm-hmm. and what are the changes that you've seen and that you like to see and what you experience that you can share with us that, you know, give a light about like what it's like to be African-American women in the space? Great question. <laughs> um, I will say that, uh, I will be honest, part of, part of the story that I rarely tell is that at the point that I was at onset and I'd gone or I'd, I'd been with them for three years, um, one of the reasons that I wanted to go back into industry was that, you know, there weren't many African-American women in uh, healthcare venture at that point. I think I knew three across the, company, the country beside myself. <laughs> um, and it was highly, <laughs> uh, uh, it, it was an extremely male-dominated field. And there were a lot of sharp elbows from those males. And I just felt, I spent a lot of time and money <laughs> learning this business. And I did not want to deal with all of the bad attitudes and that I could be more successful and have more fun going back into industry. That has changed a lot now. Um, A, there are many more women. There are many more African-American women, not as many as there should be (laughs) by far. Um, And not many, not nearly as many as I would like to see on the healthcare side. I, I I would say that Within tech venture capital, um, we've made huge strides from that perspective, but it's still only 2% of the overall uh, uh, members within our community. And so I think groups like National Venture Capital Association and the Venture Forward Arm and Black VC and Latinx VC and and, uh, All Race and and Blend in Chicago, those groups have done... a, a tremendous amount of work to one increase awareness, but ha- also help to create a better environment of which you can step into in venture. It is a challenging business, <laughs> uh, but there are many challenging professions. What makes it better? What makes it easier to weather a lot of those challenges is having really great people around you, and I think that that the, the industry is putting in the work to make it a better overall industry to operate in. So do I feel better? Do I have less friction being a venture capitalist today as an African-American woman than I did in 2000? Yes, but it still, it still needs to be worked better. <laughs> there's, there's still, like in healthcare, there's still plenty of work to be done on that front. <laughs> and so... Mentoring is great, but still in our business, sponsoring and really making sure that um, people can get access to positions that that put them into consideration for roles in venture is uh, still an important part of the work to be done. Yeah. And I think sometimes uh, I was mentioning to somebody, I was uh, somewhere in uh, an event and conference that is very much male-dominated and it's also feel like if you're, you know, being a woman and <laughs> maybe also the fact that I did not grow up here, I feel a bit intimidated to just, you know, 
going to be part of the crowd because like, do I say things right? <laughs> you know, I, I think for me, it, it was, um, I tell people, I never had the luxury, at least moving into venture, to take those considerations because as an engineer, it started from day one as an engineer of, oh, okay, I'm going to be the only woman in this engineering conference. Okay. <laughs> oh, I'm going to be the only black person at this. And okay. <laughs> so it was, so you, I got used to being in that situation of, well, I'm just going to have to go for it because I can't wait. <laughs> but for, for, you know, this room to magically change until one day it did start to, and I started to see more people that looked like me and I was like, this is fantastic. <laughs> now you don't have to be the only African-American or African-American woman or woman in the room, in these rooms. And um, I think just inherently the discussions become a lot better. The investments become a lot better. We, we know this, this the, everything in this and the statistics tell us that, that is true. And so um, the work just has to continue of, okay, how do we not only continue, but like accelerate and increase the number of people that are diverse in race and ethnicity and gender and thought that come into this industry. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, thank you. You just inspired me. Now I feel like when I get there, I'm just like, okay, I'm just going to go ahead. Just Nicole just did that. <laughs> Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.